Welcome to Smart Council, Spiritual Integration. Smart Council is a podcast dedicated to providing resources, perspectives on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma to providers, students, and prospective students. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua. And we are here with Jeremiah Peck. How's it going? Oh, very good. Cool. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeremiah. Um, who are you and what's your corner of the counseling field? Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm uh, name is Jeremiah Peck. I've been involved with helping people mostly in a uh, Christian church uh, setting, been involved with pastoral ministry for about 12 years. Uh, more recently, the last four years um, in the state of Washington as a, a mental health counselor associated with a private practice and working with couples, exceedingly individuals with a variety of behavioral concerns, um, anxiety concerns, depression concerns, uh, things of that nature. And so you said you, were, you do couples work? Yes. Um, it, of all of all things, um, I w- work with a variety of people, but of all things, I find couples most, uh, while most challenging, probably also most rewarding. So definitely my passion and specialty would be in couples work. I, I respect that that is your specialty because that intimidates me. So, <laughs> <laughs> And you are a Multnomah alumni? Yes. 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 And you have a, a master's degree. Yep. So um, I did my undergraduate at Multnomah um, and liked it so much there that I stuck around another couple of years to okay. do my um, MA in counseling. Okay. Me too. <laughs> and and, and my, myself as well. We've known each other a long time, all yes, of us. <laughs> we have indeed. So as a topic on the table is spiritual integration, which I'll call that out right away, given that the audience of our podcast, our listeners are a very mixed audience for sure. You know, we are sponsored by a Christian university. We're speaking to a very professional field with a variety of uh, belief systems. Maybe even before we jump into the topic of what is spiritual integration, we can talk about why Why should we even talk about this? Why devote a podcast episode or two to a potentially very loaded topic like this? What are your thoughts? First, I should I should clarify. Um, so the practice that I, I operate out of is called a New Life Christian Counseling. Um, so myself and the other associates there, the other counselors, we're upfront with our belief system. We're upfront with where we're coming from. You can go onto our website and read our bios, and um, there's there's no surprise or secret that we come from a Christian faith background and perspective. However, I find that many people who come um, into my office either they they see that and they come to see a Christian counselor because they identify that way as well. Their faith and spirituality is important to them. However probably a half and half mix of people who come in and they don't identify with a Christian faith background and that either it was important to them to see a Christian counselor for a different reason um, and some of those reasons have been really uh, really neat to hear or it wasn't important to them at all they were referred by someone else. I think sometimes there's a stereotype that if you're a Christian counselor you only see or work with Christians and Mm -hmm. about half my practice um, would be Christians and non-Christians. I think the other stereotypes attached to Christian counseling would be that it's biblical counseling, where all we all we do is you know pray and read Bible verses. Newthetics. Newthetics, <laughs> yeah. yes. And there is a population of people that do that. We'll talk with them sometime. But that's not what you do. That's not what we do. And that's not all that Christian counseling is. Absolutely. So if you have someone who comes into your office and they don't identify with the Christian faith, but they've come to see a Christian therapist for whatever reason, would you still integrate? spiritual integrations? Would, would there be that in play still? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So part of my intake and making sure that full disclosure, they do understand, maybe they haven't gone to the website, maybe they didn't see the big name on the door that says 
Christian counselor. Even in my intake, I, I do go over that and let them know what my background is, um, what my faith perspective is. And with that, I, I invite them to set the tone for what we discuss in regards to spirituality. So I say majority of what I'll bring up overtly, I'm going to do by invitation. Take, for example, I, I tell this both to Christian and non-Christian clients that if, if they want to discuss scripture, if that's a value to them, I let them know it's certainly a value of mine, but I'm not going to, in an unwelcome manner, say in response to them, well, you know what the Bible says about that. If that's not welcome, if that's not invited, I'll tell them it's a value of mine, but I'm not going to be the one driving that, bringing that in without without their invitation. And from that um, prompting, I have both Christian and non-Christian clients say, yes, you know, the Bible, we think it's, you know, everything from we think it's the Word of God, and some people say, well, we think there's just some wisdom in it because it's an old, it's an old book non-Christian clients have asked me to pray before a session, which I'm happy to do. Mm-hmm. I find that complete transparency is a good a good modality and a good posture in a spiritual integrative mm. uh, setting. Do you still work with them on existential issues, even if they don't have uh, uh, the same faith? Oh, absolutely. And again, that, that transparency where full disclosure of, of my faith background and world, but also just the the unthreatening, well, tell me about... Tell me about your belief system. Right. Tell me about wh- why you think you're here, what, what drives you, motivates you. And if they're, if they're in a crisis there, they'll be able to express those things in a, in a safe environment, which, which is healthy and it's therapeutic and helpful. So. Mm-hmm. so in our clarification process, we're calling out that Christian counseling is not specifically biblical counseling and it's not specifically counseling just to other Christians, but it's, it's a framework that you, a Christian counselor, operate out of as an option, at least. And I guess that's part of the discussion I want to get into uh, is like, uh, what does that look like? But I think it's important to mention, too, that when we're talking about spiritual integration as a topic, and not strictly Christian in nature, when we talk about like spirituality versus religion, spirituality versus Christianity, I think it's much a much broader term is used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. It's like referring to when they reference a higher power and like Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's a spirituality <laughs> component to that as well. And I understand, obviously, everything Christian can be very triggering to some people. Everything related to religion in general can be very triggering to other people. But there are, the, there are those who are very you know, hostile toward uh, religion for legitimate reasons, but still have a sense of the spiritual or a sense of the transcendent or the ultimate. And in more secular settings, I find it helpful to think of it in those terms as when, when a person's talking about spirituality, talking about what are their ultimate beliefs, their ultimate causes, you know, what's the their framework that's bigger than themselves that they plug into. And obviously that may look very different for, for everybody. So why is it important that we talk about that? Even as people come in, as you're saying, and they may have a different definition of spirituality, I I appeal back to what I had mentioned earlier about transparency. Um, When two people can come into a room, you know, and the the client comes in for counseling, and their therapist or myself is able to be transparent with them, is able to be, well, this is this is my framework. This is so you can understand where I'm coming from as I as I listen to you, as I hear you. Um, and it gives them the freedom to suggest their own definitions of, of what things are, spirituality, and what that means to them. I am also transparent in, probably to clarify terms a little bit, there's the nuthetic counseling, which is, you know, everything is, is out of the Bible, so to speak, which is different from Christian integrative counseling. Um, where we will employ different strategies and interventions and, you know, look at childhood and, and things of that nature. 
However, for myself, one thing I'm transparent with is, is even if I'm not overtly quoting the Bible to them or bringing up a passage that might be helpful, is I do, I do acknowledge and affirm that counseling is a, is a Christian biblical concept. I see that modeled in scripture. I see, you know, according to my faith, Jesus is the wonderful counselor and God doing that all throughout history uh, with his people. So, but I also acknowledge that the person sitting across from me may not see that and that might not be helpful to them in that moment. But they don't always need to know like where your inspiration for your interventions comes from. Yeah. And my, my assumption would be that it, it isn't necessarily obvious. Sure. Like, for example, I think I've seen a lot of therapists or pastors reference where they, they get this wisdom. And it sounds like you would do that if it would be well-received or if that was therapeutic. Yeah, if it, if it would be helpful. Otherwise, it may be more covert. Mm-hmm. I think the very nature of sitting with someone and, you know, that empathically listening to them, feeling as they feel. You look at scripture and we're, we're encouraged to grieve with those who grieve and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And and we get an opportunity to do that in a counseling environment. Mm-hmm. Coming back to your question, Reese, about mm-hmm. why do this? Why is this important? Yeah. I think for a couple of reasons. One, whether someone is a Christian or not, or they come from a different religious background or faith background, spirituality is part of most people's identity. It depends what they call their spirituality, but there's an element of the unseen that constitutes who they are. And I think having a, a transparent approach to that as opposed to maybe uh, avoiding it in a, in a counseling um, environment is is not holistic. It's not entirely as helpful as it might be if, if you were open to addressing a variety of things. So I work with a lot of premarital uh, couples as well, and I'm, I'm astounded how some premarital programs have things that are off the table and for conversations. I've had clients come in to, uh, to see me for premarital counseling and they say well the last person we saw said that we wouldn't talk about sex <laughs> which is strange <laughs> yeah which is which is strange because again okay so we're talking about marriage we're talking about a you know a premarital setting uh-huh. and your last premarital counselor said that we wouldn't talk about sex well i, I see that elsa is here where the counselors aren't willing to talk about spirituality mm-hmm. well that's a part of who the person is so it's it's not something i think you can exclude so why is it important because it's a part of every person we see i appreciate that and i think that that taps into the the ethical component of it as well i mean obviously we'd be aware you know there's an ethical drive to not impose values but there is also an ethical drive to address the whole person and to provide best practices and to not ignore or not utilize something that could be of incredible value to to the client, to the to the alliance. You know, I agree with what you're saying. For me to not acknowledge the spiritual component, or or hurt by a spiritual component or anti-spiritual component in a person would be, I, I feel like that would be negligence mm. because it is it's a core element of who they are that is going to affect them in every way of their being, whether they believe in God, whether they don't believe in God. That single belief there is going to shape everything that follows. So you mentioned the ethical component of as this comes up in conversation, as it comes up in in therapy, and I would go back to appealing to the benefit of that transparency. The minute as therapists that we are not as transparent as we ought to be to our clients, it leaves room for there to be some sort of an agenda, for there to be some sort of a, we're writing on our notepad, I need to make my client realize this or come to this conclusion. And when we have a hidden agenda, we're focused more on what we want for them as opposed to their presenting concern of why they came in. Certainly we can make suggestions as we make observations, 
but the primary piece is the client has come in with a distress. They might not know where it's coming from, and we can make those suggestions to them, like, did you know that this is the root of your concern? But primarily, my modality asserts that they're in the driver's seat in terms of why they're here, what they would like to address. I, I suggest things along the way. I'm the tour guide, but they have the autonomy there. I am curious and would like to understand more about that. You said that when there's not transparency, there's room for agendas. Is there ever a time where you would like them to realize something or you see they need to realize something? And then does that mean that you are more open with them about seeing that? Or uh, do you just not act on any agenda? Because I know there's different models. Sure. So if I if there's something that I do hope that they see or a connection that I'm observing, I go, oh, I wish they knew that their fear of abandonment was from their childhood with a yes. parental figure, something of that nature, yes. then I'm transparent and I tell them, oh, I, I'm observing this, I'm wondering if, if you think there's validity to this, and if they say no, I say, okay, well. There's no, there's no hidden agenda that you work because you just speak it out loud. <laughs> you know, It's like, oh, well, I, I think there's a connection here. And then collaboratively, you work that theory. Right. Okay. I tell people in a, even in the intake is a phrase you'll hear me use often is I'm wondering, I'm wondering about yes. this uh, because if I am wondering something, you're going to hear about it. Right. Um, so as they're, as they're telling me, you know, about their relationships, I may say, oh, I'm, I'm wondering why that is, or I'm wondering if your parents have anything to do with that because I'm, I'm not going to try to ask leading questions to steer them in a direction that, that I'd be coercing or, or manipulating in that mm. way. Right. So. Yeah. Something that I talk about with my students when they're learning the basic counseling skills, reflective listening and things is obviously, you know, be aware of your agenda, your, your own presence in the room. But also, you know, you don't ask the leading questions and you don't push an agenda, but you can reflect with an emphasis or reflect with a twist. As they're talking, you know, you you pick out a pattern and you reflect that back to them. And it's only what they're, they're giving you. You're not putting anything else into it, but being selective, intentional in what you reflect. It's not that you're, you're pushing your agenda as much as you are noticing something conspicuous in front of them well and wondering if they hear it versus say it if it'll hit a different part of their brain and right. unlock something you know? for sure <laughs> yeah i feel like that might be something that separates say the the strict biblical counselor from the professional integrated christian counselor is the is what we do with agendas because i imagine well, I'm not being a biblical counselor, I can't speak for them, but it seems like in a, a strictly biblical counselor working in a strictly Christian environment, there could be a more overt presence of here's an agenda because we're all working within one particular faith tradition. So it kind of makes more sense there. But it seems like a difference between that and a professional setting is maybe being more mindful about what agendas are or having a more developed mental internal mechanism for setting aside your own agenda as a clinician, which I'll definitely throw out for the, the counseling students, particularly the Christian counseling students who may be listening to this as definitely that that's a caution yeah. and something to, to make sure you're, you're developing. If you're going to call yourself a professional counselor and a Christian and work in a professional secular setting, you need to be able to be mindful of your own agenda, your own worldview. It's definitely going to form who you are as a, as a clinician, but you also need to be able to in a sense, turn it off in certain settings for for certain clients. Just picking up back on what you're saying, we don't have to always be preaching for in sure. order to be ministering. I think St. Francis of Assisi is known for saying, "Use you know, always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I always liked that. And that I do, I personally hold the belief that if we are getting people closer to mental health, that truth, whether it's what I think is truth or something else, truth is more recognizable the healthier you are. And that's how I think some Christians can see working in a non-Christian environment and having to 
be cautious about their agendas and be cautious about their value systems and letting the client truly be in the driver's seat. We can't actually feel like we are leading towards better spirituality or more healthy spirituality, even if our own particular books, <laughs> theologies, <laughs> orthodoxies never come into play. Even for the non-Christian who comes in because they're in distress, as they as they reconcile, um, you know, be it the trauma or the relationship distress that they're in, they may be in in more of a position to make self-discoveries, to make discoveries about faith or spirituality that they they wouldn't have been open to um, otherwise. Right. So distress has a way of blinding us, of, of keeping us stuck in the hole, so to speak. Right. And I, I affirm what you're saying in that as as ministers in that way, as we're, we're helping people heal, we're helping people just reconcile uh, distress, that it's also putting them in a position where where they may they may have that discovery. Right. So I'm thinking about considering our mixed audience, different things to say to different sides of it. So so we would definitely say to the you know, to the Christian counselor, you know, be mindful of your own agenda and be careful not to you know let it shape who you are, but be careful not to push it on somebody. I wonder what what we might say to say the the secular or the the non spiritual non religious clinician working with a religiously oriented client. <laughs> what tips or strategies can we offer to clinicians in that camp? I've worked with both um, both that I'll describe here. I've worked with some either secular or they identify with a different faith background, and um, I've worked with some individuals that, as as they meet with their clients, you know, we, we kind of just collaborate and we'll right. we'll share some things confidentially, of course. But as they approach clients, they'll they'll have that same transparent demeanor. If they don't identify with a faith background, they'll say that. And they'll also approach in a respectable um, way with clients that either do identify with a certain faith background or a Christian faith background or what have you. And to that I say, if, if they're being transparent, if they're being respectful, if they're being open-minded to, to where their client is and honoring their client's values, then that's a really helpful posturing. That being said, I've also had colleagues or, or known different counselors that will view any sort of faith expression or any form of religiosity as a mental illness or a disorder mm-hmm. or um, something in that regard. There, I'd say you're imposing a, a belief system of yours into the therapeutic environment, and I think that's that's just as harmful as the other way around. And it does make you wonder why there are so many Christian counseling clinics. There must be some amount of discomfort in the Christian population in normal clinical services. They, they feel drawn to not only uh, well, create these services, but, but keep them used. And that's just realizing, you know, having some people who do identify with a Christian background come into the office because the last counselor they saw equated prayer with talking to an imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. and how, how that was an offensive thing to them. In that case, you're not honoring your client's values. You're, you're not doing spiritual integration well. It almost starts to feel like there's a cultural barrier that's being unacknowledged and un, you know, unassessed. I've definitely observed that too, where like we, like we were talking about the spiritual orientation of a person, it's a very deep core aspect of who they are. It shapes everything about them. And it can be a great source of you know, hope and joy and stability and ultimate meaning. And yeah, I would agree. It would be very unfair to 
as a blanket statement, write all of that off as just pathology or just psychosis or just a lack of intelligence. Maybe in a different episode we could talk about, so what is the difference between, you know, a religious belief and a pathology? Because there is a little bit of... <laughs> there might be some overlap. There, and, uh, there's, a little, there's a little bit every now and then. And yeah. I'm thinking of like the you know, religiously motivated person who might commit an act of violence, you know. There's an extreme example that's easier to use without offending in a specific person. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so sometime we'll dive into that specifically. But in a lot more cases, I would say a religious orientation of some sort would probably be more of a helpful thing than, than not. And again, you know, the non-religious clinician, I think, would be missing out on a great resource in the client room to not address it at all or to just write it off. I realize I've referenced this a few times, but being that transparent has given me the freedom to ask each person coming in, regardless of how they identify in their faith background or spirituality, why they're coming to see a Christian counselor. If that was an important factor in their decision, and the responses I get are just so astounding and so interesting. I've had non-Christian people come in telling me they assumed a Christian counselor would have more integrity and ethics than a non-Christian counselor, even though they don't identify with a Christian faith. Mm. Um, so I, I've, I've heard things like that, and it's just right. uh, so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons why people really are drawn towards your particular type of clinic. So I'm interested in getting into some of the nuts and bolts of how to do spiritual integration and what does it look like. A little bit of my context is teaching in a counseling program at a Christian university. A component of our curriculum, in addition to the, the standardized professional training, is spiritual integration. And I've seen a lot of variations of this that I don't like and, and a, few that, a few that I do. You know, I think one extreme of technique is you know, the, the new Christian counselor who will say, yeah, my spiritual integration is I pray for my clients before and after session and I use this Bible verse and I have them do this prayer and journaling homework. And there's a big part of me that wants to say there has to be more to spiritual integration than something like that. So that's a little bit of my context for, for the question. And so for you two, what are the nuts and bolts techniques of how to do spiritual integration? You know, given what we've discussed so far, learning where your client identifies, where your client is at in regards to their own spirituality or faith, and giving them an opportunity to be informed about your perspective as well, I think will influence what it will look like. To my client that's sitting across from me who um, professes to be a Christian, professes to, to value the Bible and, and things of that nature, our conversations um, may look more overt, our conversations may look different because we both um, identify that way as opposed to someone else who, who wouldn't. We'd still be transparent, but how it's expressed uh, may, come up, may come about differently. I think even as you ask that question, there's, there's not a, a cookie cutter way to say this is the five expressions of spiritual integration <laughs> in therapy. For sure. If you made that discovery, it would make a fine title for a book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is fitting for our profession that there's not something fixed because a lot of things are fluid for us, uh, which is great. Another in highly individualized process. What are some specific things that you've done before uh, with at least an individual? I'll use an example of, of someone who claims to be a Christian or claims to, to value the Bible. I'm, again, upfront in, in my acknowledgement that I'll say I, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe the Bible is sufficient for the faith and practice of a believer, entirely sufficient. So when we appeal to wise choices, wise behaviors, wise relational actions, um, we're acknowledging that often these principles 
are grounded in Scripture. And when we, we see what, what God has in that regard, um, there's, there's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of health and wellness integrated all throughout the Bible. Then to take someone who, who might not come from that background, I wouldn't hide that part of myself. I wouldn't keep that a secret. I would still appeal to, well, my understanding of, of a wise thing in this situation or my understanding of a helpful thing in this situation would look like this based on your distress. And they still have an opportunity to, to dialogue with that. They have an opportunity to, to communicate and, and to interact with that. I go back to the, it, it looks different for each person mm-hmm. and transparency is, is essential. But also, probably as I, as I hash this out a little bit, for the clinician to understand, really have a good self-awareness with what their values really are, I think probably a, a roadblock to their own transparency is an inability to articulate their beliefs mm-hmm. or an inability to articulate where they stand on, on things. There's, there's a need to, to know oneself in that regard. Um, if you're going to discuss spirituality with a person. To truly do spiritual integration would mean being able to really keep track of your own self and know know your own beliefs, know your own worldviews so, so deeply, so confidently that you don't have to question it and that maybe it just kind of instinctively comes out in how you frame things and in the nuances of how you talk about things. And again, some of my context is generally very, very secular, often very liberal settings to where, you know, a lot of the people around me are not just not Christian, but maybe very uh, anti-Christian. Then so working working in that framework, spiritual integration would look very individualized for me also. And I'm thinking of situations where, say, I'm working with a person who we're talking about their relationship conflicts with a partner. And it comes down to questions about, you know, the client's needs, the client's boundaries, and they're not getting what they want. They're not getting what they feel like they need. They're feeling like their partner's asking too much of them in this or that way. I can imagine how one school of thought may be more humanist oriented school of thought might really emphasize yeah they should find a way to get everything that they need and everything that they want and look at their their personal pleasure and fulfillment as as an ultimate end and i don't discount that i definitely want my clients to experience pleasure fulfillment but i know my worldview makes a lot of space for sometimes deferment of one's personal needs for the sake of the of another person or you know, my worldview makes a lot of space for a self-sacrifice that is healthy and enriching. But my professional framework also makes space for, and sometimes self-sacrifice can be exploited and it can be an abusive situation. And then that's when we wouldn't want that. We'd have to find a balance somewhere. But, but I think it's in, the, it's in the nuances of, well, what do I emphasize with this client? That is where the spiritual integration really comes out for me. Right. And for your audience here, if there are professional counselors listening, this hopefully won't be no new news, but as counselors, we're not professional advice givers. Uh, it's not that people come in and say, here's, here's the situation, what should I do? And we're the professionals with all of the answers, and our job is to say, oh, well, this is obviously the courses of action you should take in, in that regard. Which, for people who aren't professional clinicians, that, that may be news to them, some people have a, a view of counseling that I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go see a counselor so they can tell me what to do. So we're, we're not professional advice givers. So even in the face of the question of, well, is there an ethical dilemma or what should we do when, when someone brings up a situation and the, the word or advice we give them, is it coming from a Christian background or is it coming from our, our other faith background? We often don't give advice. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's not our role. Right. 
if we're a navigator, then it becomes less about us. Um, I happen to affirm that less about my words and more about my posture makes me a Christian counselor. Mm -hmm. And I identify my posturing in the clinical setting to be biblical, to be, if you were to ask, where do I get my non-judgmental stance? Where do I get my stance of compassion and grace and mercy and, and listening to the person? Where do I get my, my belief and value that the person sitting across from me has, has value? Well, I get that from, from my spiritual belief. So it's more about, for me, spiritual integration is more about what I'm doing with my own posturing than giving the client Christian advice. We're not advice givers. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by posturing? I think I know, but for the sake of our, our listeners, what do you mean when you use that word? Yeah, I appreciate you you pointing that out. It's not a it's not a physical posture by yeah. by any means. As I talk about things like a, a non judgmental demeanor or a non condemning stance back towards them, non challenging. Well, maybe there are some ideas that that's helpful to get challenged. Challenge mm-hmm. isn't overtly bad, but more about how you're relating to the person, having compassion, having empathy. Uh, those are things that I, I would relate to, how you posture yourself, right. uh, your clinical, non-physical stance, so mm-hmm. to speak. I like it. And I like the idea of a posture versus a position, because I can imagine a, p- a person taking the position of, well, I take this stance, this belief on this issue, and I'm not moving from it. So it's very fixed. Versus a posture, which is not about an argument or a stance as much as an attitude or an overall world review framework. Like you say, like your posture is that people have inherent worth and dignity. Your posture is that I'm going to be, you know, non-condemning and compassionate. You know, your posture is, well, I'm going to sometimes challenge you, but also in a very loving and compassionate way. I, I appreciate that very much. Spirituality, for me, it kind of depends on the definition of spirituality, uh, which might be a little bit hard. <laughs> but but I'm going to say that I, I believe that spirituality actually does have a lot to do with connection and relationship, community, belonging, purpose. And a lot of these things are in play in the session. And so if I were to quote Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation, <laughs> my wife's favorite line is, everything I do is the attitude of an award winner because I have won an award as a justification for not acting like a classic award winner. But everything I do is spiritual because I am a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a cop-out as much as it is an explanation that we have all these broken relationships and these broken dynamics, and they all do come back to maybe the meta narrative of we have a broken relationship that needs repair, and there's some restoration needed there, and there's gaps, and there's pieces, and there's restitution needed, and, and that there are smaller micro versions of this in our lives everywhere, and that we can gain the skills and the practice of working on some of these things, and that they do ultimately let us see the meta narrative more clearly. We don't have to preach, or even from my perspective, as someone who acts more in a non-Christian counseling environment, we can do that work without actually having to even share our larger view of this meta narrative or our larger view of this pattern. And that, yes, we're working right here, right now between you and your wife or between you and your kids or between whoever, but that these relationships are following similar patterns, that we just see that pattern. People who are Christians see that that pattern ultimately has a big like story that ties it all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this pattern exists maybe between you and God, mm-hmm. and not just between you and your wife, and not just between you and your kids. The spirituality is how you connect all the pieces of your life and all the pieces right. of the world around you. Right. And the order and pattern in which you connect those will have to do with what are your baseline assumptions. Yeah, we can't not spiritually integrate. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. 
uh, maybe it just maybe it just does happen. Uh, we're just unaware of connections. It sounds like this idea of spiritual integration sort of transcends technique and it's more just inherent quality. Uh, you know, but it sounds like authenticity, transparency, transparency, you know, with your client for informed consent and ethical reasons and treatment planning efficacy and things like that. But also authentic, you know, you being authentic with yourself, knowing who you are, what you believe. And having done some prior reflection and what are the implications of that in this, this, and that scenario, political issue, et cetera, that seems like a really good starting point for being able to do spiritual integration well. And even, you know, so you can take secular psychology, even from a humanistic standpoint, you know, look at Carl Rogers with... Um, when he sits down with an individual, we talk about unconditional positive regard. Right. We talk about having that, uh, what's the term, the phenomenological relationship mm-hmm. where you enter into their experience. You can look at ideas like that. And as a clinician, I can look at ideas of how psychology posits that. And from my faith background... What, what does what, this and, sound familiar? You know? yeah. I know. <laughs> well, I, I can see, okay, from my faith background, my, my ability to do that, mm-hmm. to believe that this person has that intrinsic worth, that, that they... They deserve that compassion. They're they're hurting, and I enter into that experience, is is not just supplemented my my faith beliefs. It's driven by it. Mm-hmm. It's not psychology first, backed by you know biblical ideas. For me, counseling in nature is a is a Christian concept. Um, I, I see that modeled by God Himself. I, I can I can enter into that both transparently and quite honestly boldly because it's it's not something that that I'd be even ashamed to discuss mm-hmm. with someone. You know, you, you highlighted that word posture. Being able to, to speak that way about spirituality in a manner that's not threatening doesn't give room to the person to then become defensive and or confrontational, but to have an honest and helpful conversation about their own spirituality, which might not, they might not have an opportunity to have those conversations in much other arenas of their life. So to also take advantage of the counseling office is often referred to as the one place you can talk about anything. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be the place you can talk about anything besides spirituality. That should be fair game too. Yes. Right. <laughs> and, and I like how you t- we're talking about being able to talk about your own spirituality, your own worldview, definitely in a way that's non-threatening and often in a way that's subtle and nuanced. And I feel like the other side of that would be being able to be in the room with the other person's spirituality or the other person's anti-spirituality or the other person's worldview in general, and not be threatened by them. And here I'm thinking about countertransference of various sorts, and it could have to do with a client who's very has some very strong anti-beliefs toward your religious background, your political stance, your views on gun control, or anything. You know, maybe everything that they believe is in direct opposition to everything you believe. But to be able to be in that space and not be threatened by them, and to allow them to, to be them, to recognize, eh, you be you, I be me. Yeah, we disagree on just about everything. I still care about you. I'm still going to walk with you. I'm still going to treat you with honor and dignity and respect. And then maybe later I'll like, you know, frantically like, you know, talk to my supervisor. But I feel like that that's another important component as well. So a couple of things that, you know, for, for a professional clinician needs to be able to affirm, of course, that any any interactions they have with a client, um, you know, you look at the Hippocratic Oath of to do no harm. Mm-hmm. So every every interaction we have, our our motivation must not come from a place where we're wanting to cause harm or anything of like that. And right. not just from a motivation standpoint, but ensuring our our ethics says 
the posturing I'm taking, the, the words that I'm using, where I'm leading the conversation is all in a place coming from their best interest. I don't intend to do harm, nor do I foresee this doing harm. Kind of two things that, that go in line with that. And that that applies to our self-disclosure as well. Will, will my self-disclosure do harm in this therapeutic relationship? Will it do harm to this person's pathology? If there's a case where for some reason it would, well, it, it wouldn't be in their interest or in our ethical stance to, to have self-disclosure. Um, but I think there's another element there when we look at the arena of disclosing you know, what it is that we believe as, as clinicians or where we're coming from, and that is what our motivation is for doing that. If our motivation, again, becomes to persuade them to come into our corner, whatever that be, be mm-hmm. it our faith, our politics, our, our position on, on an issue, then we've left the area of therapy and we've gone more into the area of debate or okay. um, at, at, at the very best, you yeah. know. So that there's, a, there's a motivation piece. When I disclose any bit of personal information to a client, it's going to be them serving, not self-serving. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that, that must be why we do that. Motivation is important. Context is important as well. Because uh, like you said, because you work in a Christian counseling center, I, I worked in a community mental health clinic and then in another just professional counseling agency where it's not overtly Christian and sometimes very non-Christian. And so you know, it makes more sense in your context for that disclosure to happen per individual. You know, In my context, it makes much less sense to make that disclosure. I mean, I have every now and then with uh, an overtly Christian client. But in most cases, I generally don't make specific disclosure about my own worldview. I operate within it pretty freely, but... I'm not assigning any specific language to it. Uh, again, given given the context, and again, given the motivation, you know, my motivation is to help the client, not distract them with anything. And there's a lot of cases for me anyway, where in my context, self-disclosure about my spiritual background would be more triggering, distracting than anything. So I don't talk about it, but I talk from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, talking from it instead of talking about it. And when you say trying to help the client, just to clarify, I assume we're all talking about what their goal is, their identified mm-hmm. goal, keeping their goal in our head. We say, well, we want to help them. We're, we're thinking about uh, helping their goal, their their verbalized goal. I think that comes back to maybe another concept of like motivational interviewing, staying with what they want. And if what they want isn't going to help them, our goal is to probably... We, we, we're not going to lie to them. Mm. You know, maybe the transparency will tell them, like, oh, that might not get you your, that might not actually get you what you want. But to work through that with them and to work through the process with them in the driver's seat. Even, you know, with what we can disclose, and this, this doesn't just have to apply to the realm of spiritual integration, but realizing that it may be beneficial. Um, so to talk about a little bit of what I meant by when self-disclosure may be helpful for the client. Outside of the realm of spiritual integration, if they have a due to abuse, neglect, or otherwise disturbed view of a parent-child relationship, and that's that's an area of their distress, that's an area of, uh, of a root of a pathology, there may be times where it's helpful for the client to know that I am a husband. It might be helpful for the client to know that I am a father. Because um, it, it gives context to a bit of our conversation. Do I disclose that to everyone? Well, it won't be helpful to everyone, but there are instances where that may be helpful to them. So it's, again, not self-serving. It's using a bit of that discernment to say, would this be beneficial for them to know that this person sitting across from them is a father with, with children mm-hmm. and can speak to some of those things or at least listens from a place of that experience? Mm-hmm. Taking that into 
as we talk about spiritual integration, I have sat with people, as, as you were referring to, the, the anti-people who are against uh, Christianity or have been hurt by Christianity. And even then, there may be instances where it is helpful for me to say, hey, just so you know, as, as I'm being transparent, I come from a faith background, but here's also what I hope that doesn't mean for you. It's great to see in those situations where it's been helpful to do that, where they've had very pleasant interactions with me to say, oh, you're not like the other people I've encountered who call themselves Christian. It destigmatizes some things to them, which can help them process grief, anger, abuse, what have you, from someone who claimed something, and now there's a, a cognitive relationship between the person's identification as a Christian and the abuse that they experienced. So in those times, self-disclosure, again, can be helpful. Self-disclosure, as, as we learn in ethics class, is a very nuanced, very individualized, a very risky, but sometimes very beneficial process. So kind of working toward, toward, toward conclusion here, for the counseling student or for the newer counselor who is wanting to learn better how to do spiritual integration, what advice or tips or techniques or homework would you suggest to, to, that, to that person who's saying, I, I do come up from a faith background, I want to learn how to integrate it into my counseling practice well, but not overtly, but not in a corny way, what would you suggest to them as a starting point? I think it's great, especially for young counselors, to be involved in mentoring relationships where they are being mentored. Um, I think it's great for young counselors to be in counseling themselves. As you start to learn about spiritual integration, um, I, I re- referenced this earlier, but knowing yourself um, is, is of utmost importance there. Knowing what you believe and why, knowing what triggers uh, might come up for you that, that would cause you to, to feel defensive. What, what would get you riled up, so to speak. Having that self-awareness that you might not have just going into a counseling program and saying, I wanna, I wanna help people. Well, take a look at yourself first um, would be a, a real big component in, in doing this well. It's something that I'm very passionate about too. Therapists should try therapy. If you're a therapist, do you know why? Nobody says I want a master's degree to work for that kind of salary. Your motives are suspect. Uh, (laughs) I throw myself (laughs) under the bus and I throw both of you under the bus and all of our listeners. Yep. (laughs) And it's okay that that's where we are. It's okay that this is what we're doing. But if we haven't worked through how we got here and why we're here, why do you want to help people? And, you know, are you that altruistic? No, I don't think so. No. Uh, I think we're trying to give meaning to our own pain. So as a result, yeah, have we done our own counseling? Have we worked through all of our issues so that we can be the best therapist that we need to be, the most objective therapist that we need to be, the clear of our blind spots for our clients? I think that's critical and very often missed. The crucial importance of knowing your own self, knowing your own journey, where yourself begins and ends, and just what do you believe and why. Oh, yeah, that's easy. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Know thyself. Was that... Socrates, Confucius, I don't remember. I was thinking of that same quote and wondering if it was a philosopher or if it was Shakespeare, but I think yeah. it was a philosopher. Given the, the nature of our... Should we see we recoin it to therapist, know thyself? Know thyself, yes. <laughs> Given the nature of, of our conversation today, um, one thing that's it's comical to me are the, the things that are attributed to the Bible but are not from the Bible, and that's one of those things that I've heard is, well, the Bible says to know thyself. That's not from the Bible. No, 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 Bible. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> One of those philosophers. One of those yes. philosophers. Thanks, Jeremiah, for being with us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, for listener, for following us. And do feel free to follow our conversation on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast and on Twitter at Smart Council 601. And we will be back next time with more Smart Council.